This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Joining me, as always, my fellow enjoyer of Malaysian fiction, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. And we have today with us Karina Robles Barin, who is an author and winner of the 2022 Epigram Books Fiction Prize for the book The Accidental Malay, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So firstly, we wanted to start off by congratulating you and asking uh, how it feels to win the Epigram Prize. <laughs> well, it was unexpected, um, although the prize is generally for, for new authors. Uh, this is also this was also my first full-length novel or attempt at one. What made you decide to submit for the prize in the first place? And uh, what was the process of working on the submission? Ah, okay. So I completed the novel sometime in 2020, um, and I was, you know, trying to trying to experiment with submitting it to agents in the West and things like that. Uh, and and I already knew from the outset that the sort of book that I was writing may not necessarily be something they, you know, Western agents and publishers will immediately be able to relate to and understand. Uh, so you know, I I did that just to go through the process. And then when the when the fiction prize came up, I thought, okay, why not give it a shot? I mean. Because because I always felt that the book would probably be better published in this region anyway. Um, so I did that. But of course, it was locked down. And at that time, I mean, coming close to the deadline, it was strict lockdown. And they require you to submit five hard copies, bound hard copies of the manuscript, right? So it took a little bit of kind of prodding to figure out who on the little island of Langkawi could do it. They finally managed to do it, um, you know, at the last minute. And I think it went in just by the skin of its teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the book itself then. It's called The Accidental Malay. Tell us about it. What was the idea behind it? Well, the book is generally, I mean, it's, it's actually about a woman named Jasmine who is Chinese and she is um, the presumed heir of her family company, which is famous for bakwa, right, which is pork sweetmeats. Um, unfortunately, after her grandmother dies and she thinks she's about to ascend the throne, so to speak, she discovers that she's actually, you know, half Malay. And in this country, that then makes you Muslim. Um, and, you know, that becomes then quite problematic for her. So that's the that's kind of the kernel of the book. Why I wrote it is, is I suppose for me, the book is personal because um, I was exploring this whole idea of identity and in particular Malay identity um, and the way that in this country, you know, in some situations, it's actually in all situations, it's pretty much thrust upon you, right? If you're Malay, you're Muslim. It doesn't matter how much or little of you is Malay, you're still Malay and you're Muslim. Um, so I was just exploring that. How would you describe the style or tone of the novel? Um, I don't think that it's it's done in a literary style. It is, you know, it's to me. I think it's pretty straightforward, easy reading. Um, but and I think I sort of decided to go in that direction because I wanted to make sure that this book in particular is is accessible. You know, I wanted as many people to read it. On that note about accessibility, but also about um, the the themes that you were talking about, it would appear that it touches on things like religion, race, um, the rules of society, right, specifically when it comes to Malaysia, all of which are touchy subjects, generally speaking. And I'm speaking, I think, in some senses, that's an understatement. So um, how did you navigate all of that? <laughs> 
I don't know, there were times during the book when I was talking to my other writer friends and saying, do you think I need to leave the country when it's done? (laughs) (laughs) I still don't know, right? I mean, the book hasn't come out. I I think, I mean, I've had a couple people read it. And I I think while it does, it might be controversial in some quarters. There may be some people also who will feel that, hey, you know, this is just basically addressing the elephant in the room. You know, it's a very large elephant. We just tend to not talk about it. But it's amazing. Every interview I've done has asked me this question. So I think, you know, I I think it's a clear indication that just from the subject matter itself, you can expect that there will be some pushback. And I'm curious about in terms of (laughs) uh, striking that accessibility tone, right? You said that it's not written in a, in a literary style uh, and we haven't had the chance to read the book. So I was wondering, um, what is that What is that non-literary style? Is it conversational? Is it funny? What exactly makes it accessible? Well, I think, uh, okay, so if you, if you want to look at the definition of what is literary, it actually varies a lot. You know, in, in the UK, for example, a literary style usually indicates a novel that is, is more about the internal journey of the character um, with possibly a denouement at the end. You know, it's not so plot driven. Um, but then again, in America, something like The Kite Runner is considered, for example, literary. And that's a very plot driven novel. It wouldn't be, I don't think it would be considered, you know, literary in the UK. So uh, I, I would say my novel is is kind of, in terms of style, probably closer to something like The Kite Runner as opposed to an and an, an write, you know, a novel, for example, or yeah, oh gosh, I, I think that's what it is. It is a plot driven story. Stuff happens. It's not a story where things don't happen because there are, you know, a lot of literary novels, Things don't happen, but there's a lot of, you know, reflection on the internal journey of the character's growth. And it was just, honestly, I I love reading stuff like that. But I didn't, I I think especially, number one, I don't think I can write that kind of book. Number two, I felt it was important that this book be plot driven so that I hope more people pick it up because of the subject matter. Uh, Which I find really interesting because the plot, um, sounds absolutely like something I would pick up, but also a, a uh, Bakwa heiress um, in and of itself is, is kind of an interesting central character. And, um, you know, because you were speaking there about perhaps, you know, looking more at a plot-driven novel as opposed to necessarily a character-driven novel, I was curious about the central yeah. character. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about her. Oh, she's in her late 40s. She uh, grew up being raised by her grandmother. She knew that her father had died in the uh, in the May 13th riot. So, she, I mean, Jasmine's actually a baby that was born on the 13th of May, and her father died shortly after that. But she didn't. She grows up not knowing who her mother is. This is like a big mystery. And her grandmother is a very imposing figure. You know, she's a matriarch of the entire clan. And so Jasmine's grown up with grandma planning her entire life for her. So although she's in her late 40s, in, in some ways, she's also not quite mature because, you know, grandma's just told her what to do. Uh, so that's the woman you meet. And at the point when you meet her, she's also someone who doesn't really have friends because she's basically workaholic. But the only friend she's got is her lover, who is um, a Malay man and, and married and is actually a college sweetheart. After all of that, I want to know... <laughs> How much of the inspiration for this book stems from real life experiences or situations or people? Oh, uh, in terms of the plot, zero. <laughs> Everybody's, you know, people are like, yo, do you know this person or what? I'm like, the person doesn't exist. I completely made her up. 
and I know you know that it, it it does not even from my subconscious resemble anyone I know because halfway through the story changed right while I was writing it, um, the plot that I thought was was gonna be changed. It changed. Um, so I know I know there's not even anything subconscious. Uh, maybe there might be minor characters that I'm modeling on certain real life people, but they're very, very minor kind of side characters. Uh, you might be able to figure out who they are. But in terms of the, the main characters in the story, you know, they're completely made up. <laughs> completely. I wanted to follow up on that um, when you said that in the course of the writing, you found the direction shifting. So what was that like for you? I mean, did you start off... I suppose, pursuing a certain sort of narrative arc that you wanted to get across? Or, you know, was it something that you unearthed as you went along? Um, I think, okay, so what I did was I signed up for a course online called The Novel We, which is great for people who, who want to write. I would highly recommend it. Um, and, and that actually kind of takes you through the development of plot, right? And, and how you do that. Um, the arc itself. So I didn't go into the writing of this novel with a preconceived idea of how it would end. In fact, if anything, I think for many years, that's what held me back. Like I knew I had this idea of writing a story about this woman who then finds out she's Malay, but I wasn't sure then what would happen to her and how that could turn into something that's compelling. So changing direction to me was not traumatic because I was open to that and, and in fact I you know once I had changed direction I think I felt a lot more comfortable about where the story was going. We're speaking today with Karina Robles Barin, author and winner of the 2022 Epigram Books Fiction Prize for The Accidental Malay, which is coming out later this year. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation after this. Send us your thoughts. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bodacious, fabulous minds. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. And uh, joining us today, we have Karina robles Bahrin, author and winner of the 2022 Epigram Books Fiction Prize. Uh, we're talking about the prize, but also about the book that won said prize. And um, Karina, I mean, I... I think we've gone long enough without asking you about the transition from writing shorter pieces to a full-blown novel. Um, talk to us about what that was like. Um, <clears throat> so I've wanted to write the story for a long time, right? But I mean, having experienced the process of writing shorter fiction, uh, I was always held back by the fact that I felt I had no time. I mean, the reality is actually if you, if you just make the time, you will find it. I mean, that really is the truth. Um, so... I think when I wrote this novel, like I said, I signed up with a course because I felt I needed some guidance in order to figure out how to kind of stretch a story over a longer piece. I mean, if you look at a short story versus a novel, there's still a lot of elements that, you know, commonly commonly have to, to be there in order for a story to be compelling. I think with a novel, it's, it's you know, you just need that endurance. Um, and the plot needs to have endurance so that it um, it is able to sustain reader interest. What did you learn about yourself as a writer in this whole process? That I actually enjoy novels uh, because I'm able to sort of sit with these characters for a few months, right? As opposed to, well, generally for me, short stories take a, a shorter amount of time. Um, and also, you get to know your characters a lot better. La. <laughs> I know it sounds kooky that, you know, that you're, you're talking about imaginary people, but that really is, that really is, you know, what happens. They sort of become your friends and you kind of miss them when you're done. Left. 
You mentioned accessibility at the start, and I actually felt that, um, again, we haven't read the book, we very much want to, but what we have done is we've seen the cover. And uh, the cover is a sort of very friendly, very brightly coloured kind of approach. And I I wanted to know whether you had uh, a lot of involvement in that. Did you choose the cover? No, no, I didn't. So that was done by the publisher. And my first reaction was, oh, it looks like Crazy Rich Asia. It does. Oh, that's what what I thought too. (laughs) And I thought, okay lah, if that's what it looks like, then okay lah. <laughs> you know, hey, if I'm going to copy someone, it better be a book that sold lots of copies. <laughs> so you've, um, you've actually worked in very diverse areas. You've been in the corporate field, you've been in the arts, you've been in the tourism industry. How do all of these factor into what you write? Oh, God. Um, at the moment where this novel is concerned, not very much, except except for maybe just because Jasmine is basically, you know, a corporate figure and a lot of the the kind of work that's happening in the background about the company and the ownership of the company, that requires some knowledge about shareholdings and listings and things like that. Then, yes, there would be some of my corporate background that comes into play because I used to work at the stock exchange, right? And very early in the book, in fact, I think it was in the second chapter, the scene is set in the stock exchange when, it, when their company is about to list. So things like that. But otherwise, not really. I mean, a lot of the book does not really have anything to do with my own life. <laughs> Who would you say are some of your biggest influences as a writer, and particularly when it comes to fiction? Oh, wow. Um, when I was growing up, a lot of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I suppose I liked a lot of his books, even Isabel Allende. I went through a phase where, oh, magical realism, so cool. Um, and then I think as I matured, uh, my taste changed. So nowadays, it's not so much that I follow authors. There's certain books that I like. So if, if I look back over the last kind of three years, the books I've really liked, Hane Yanagihara's um, A Little Life, uh, Leila Slimani's The Lullaby, Lullaby or The Nanny, depending on which country you're, you're looking at. Those are probably the two standouts for me. And they're very, very different books. Very different. I'm currently reading... Um, I think it's Paul Beatty, uh, the book called The Sellout. Hilarious. But I can only do it in very tiny bits. You know, it's not a book that you zip through. That's the one that's written like it's almost rap, right? I've, I've um, read it. Yeah, it's, it's also, the premise is also hilarious because this black guy, you know, decides to reestablish slavery to some extent, you know, in his neighborhood. <laughs> it's kind of outlandish. But yeah, of course it's satire. Of course he's criticizing society. You know, it's a great book. You started off the interview by talking about um, seeing a local relevance for your novel. And I was wondering, um, how important is it for us to have publishers, this sort of book prizes, that foreground regional local writers? Uh, It's extremely important. I think without them, you know, certain types of local books would not have visibility. And I've spoken about this before. Um, If you look at the kind of books, uh, Malaysian books in fiction that uh, have been able to gain traction abroad, I think you look at first time novelist, Prita Samarasan is probably the only one I can think of, whose story was very local and didn't have to do with ghosts and didn't have to do with English people. Okay, even Tash, Tash's first book, Harmony Silk Factory, was sort of a nostalgic, you know, throwback to the, the, the kind of post-colonial colonial era. Tuan Eng, of course, that's that's where he sits, uh, which is fine. Hannah Alcock, fantastic that she's gotten all the success. Golo, hantu lah. Yang Zichu, Ghost Brat, also hantu. So, I mean, there's like this stereotype, right? That you almost have to have these things 
before anybody in the West understands what you're trying to do. You know, of course, Tash, because he's such a diverse and really bold author, has moved on. And his, his recent book is completely local, you know, contemporary. And I mean, that's great. But it took him a while to, to be able to break through those barriers, I think. Which brings us quite neatly to our next question. Uh, what advice do you have for other aspiring novelists? Uh, to just write first of all, um, and not think about, I know that a lot of people will say from the get-go, think about, you know, the market segment you're writing for and who this is going to appeal to. I mean, I think that's useful advice, but I don't think it should be used to sort of limit what you're writing. Um, It should be used to actually manage your own expectations of who will be open to, you know, reading your book and who wouldn't. And, And the would and wouldn't, to me, are just biases that are inherent, you know, in the published world. I mean, even as readers, uh, it's not something you should take personally. But so, be more concerned about, you know, your craft, and be more concerned about just sitting and being with your characters. So, the book is called The Accidental Malay. When will it be available? And what would you like to say to potential readers? Well, the book is coming out in July. I understand that it will be available in major bookstores and also on ebook platforms. Um, I. I guess, of course, I want you to read it. <laughs> I want you to read it. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with, you know, whatever is said in the book, to me, what's more important is that there is a reaction. Uh, because if I've not been able to sort of provoke some reaction from you, then that's where I, I figure I would have failed. Are there other stories and themes that you're interested on in exploring in the future? Uh, yes, but they're very contemporary as well. The whole idea of patriarchy, particularly the way it sort of um, plays out in this country, you know, and, and more specifically, perhaps how it plays out in sort of the Malay Muslim kind of space. Um, that's one thing. The other thing I'm always interested in is uh, the dynamics of relationships between women as friends and, and how that kind of affects the way or, or doesn't affect the way they, they lead their lives as they mature. I mean, those are some of the things that I'm looking at. I'm trying to, at this point in time, pin down something specific to work on, you know, a, a next novel. But I think I've just, you kind of need to get to a space where you are really, really clear on what the germ of, uh, of the idea is before you can move forward. And I'm still sort of struggling a year on uh, trying to figure that out. I've got a couple of directions, but they're not not set in stone yet. (laughs) Karina, it was a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Karina Robles-Barin, author and winner of the 2022 Epigram Books Fiction Prize for The Accidental Malay, which is coming out later this year. We're looking forward to having a read. Let us know what you think. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us, of course, at buythebook at bfm.my. That brings us to footnotes. Uh, Since we're talking about a novel that we're still anticipating, we thought we would build on that and talk about long-anticipated novels, or specifically writers who take an awfully long time in between books and publications. And we're discussing this uh, particularly because... It's been 16 years since The Road, and Cormac McCarthy, who is 88, by the way, uh, and who has not published anything since 2006, is actually going to be publishing two novels back-to-back this year. Uh, One is going to be coming out in October, that is The Passenger, and uh, the next, Stella Maris, is coming out in November. 
it almost feels like, uh, you know, it might have taken this long, but guess what? I have two for you, so don't be too upset. Um, it's a thing, isn't it? If you're a fan of a writer and you desperately want to read something new by them and then a decade goes by and then another decade and it's it's a long time to wait. Um, this is an interesting one though, right? Because it's meant to be, the two novels are companion, companion mm. works to each other about two siblings and he had apparently already completed one of them and it was kept by the, or, or rather it had been sort of in the works with the publisher for eight years and then now finally the both of them are out. So it's taken a bit of a journey, but I'm not a huge McCarthy fan. I That's it, I can identify with the um, the kind of anticipation as you wait for books by a writer that you really like to come out. And it's not an easy thing. And I, I thought a lot about this. Part of it, I think, is also because you change in the interim as well. And sometimes there's a little bit of a fear that you may not necessarily return to the works the same person. Yeah, I get that. Um, I, I was thinking that this is particularly... The Cormac McCarthy thing is interesting to me, partly because this is an unusually long period uh, for him to have not published. Uh, and also because one manuscript was actually submitted to his publisher eight years ago and then by all accounts was kept under lock and key. And then, you know, they were waiting for this companion piece. And the way that they're selling it, um, which of course is their job, makes it sound like it's going to be really intriguing, unlike anything he's written before, which to be fair, it seems to be about mathematics and physics, which if you're familiar with the works of Cormac McCarthy and the violence and the Western and the, you know, all the rest of it, the nature of man and good and evil. This is quite a departure. And so I'm, I'm interested in it from that point of view, because like you said, on the one hand, you have the taking a long time and um, potentially coming back to something and going, well, I'm actually actively not interested in this anymore. On the other hand, you could argue that some works need the author even at the age of 80, um, to grow into or they need that time of baking or sitting with or expertise growing and, and all these different things. And I can't tell which this is. It's not out yet. But that did get me thinking about the nature of taking a long time to write novels or being a reader waiting for a long time. I think as readers, we largely tend not to think about how much work goes into writing a novel. And that sometimes manifests in an impatience or even a criticism of the writer. Um, George R. R. Martin is such a great example, right? Swaths of fans have turned on him for um, taking too long with the next book and the fact that the TV show overtook his works. And it it kind of isn't fair because really, in the simplest level, you try writing a book and see how easy <laughs> it is, right? Um, but but I think there, there is, a at least for me, um, the best example I can think of is someone like Philip Pullman who finished his, his dark materials. And then there was a 17-year gap before uh, La Belle Sauvage came out, which is meant to be uh, a prelude trilogy to that trilogy. Uh, I still haven't started reading that new trilogy because the third book isn't out and I'm a little bit burnt. And I was like, I'm not going to wait 10 years. I'm just going to wait until all three are out before I start the entire trilogy. And, and I think perhaps with age also, um, the, the amount of time you're able to wait in between things uh, wanes a little bit. But that's, does that only apply, though, to trilogies or, you know, these sorts of fantasy sagas in which they're multi-volume? Because this is different, right? This is someone who's writing standalone novels. Each thing is its own thing. The closest comparison, I suppose, to between 
not fantasy fiction per se, but the kind of anticipation that is applied to multi-saga fantasy fiction is probably Thomas Harris. He was the person I was thinking of because he took an awfully long time in between um, Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon and um, Hannibal and... Well, I suppose you could argue that um, your mileage may vary on how much you enjoy the the you know all the books as a whole, but there are very few other people, right, who take that long to complete um, what isn't a fantasy saga. Um, otherwise, this sort of anticipation and the you've set me up and now it's a six book thing and we're never going to be we're never going to be done with it is quite specific to genre. So actually, for me, the other thing that um, I always think about is, and this goes back to what I said in the beginning, the notion that you sometimes change. Mm. Um, I remember being such a huge fan of The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides when it first came out. Um, And that was in 93. By the time his second book came out, Middlesex, in 2002, um, so a good nine years in between, I remember not being very invested anymore. Of course, you could argue that maybe Middlesex wasn't as good a book, but I think for me, I had just kind of changed. I didn't enjoy his style anymore. I didn't enjoy his writing anymore. Um, and sometimes that the gap also does that kind of thing. Um, you know, with a decade, a lot can change. Your Even your ability to focus on something in a particular way can change. So uh, when it's not tied to an overall arc, um, sometimes for me, that's a little bit of a worry. I get that. Um, I'm recognizing now that one of us minds waiting a lot more, <laughs> um, because and, and, and I'm clearly the the one who does mind. I think perhaps because I I have not really had the experience that you're describing in the sense of when something drops, um, even if it's been a long wait, I actually feel like it's a gift most of the time and I'm willing to invest the time in it. And if it doesn't work, I don't feel like give me my eight years back. Um, you know, it's a little bit more like well, okay. Perhaps I've changed as a as a reader. You've changed as a writer. Most of the time, though, I find I have found myself pleasantly surprised to still be invested in the author. So I haven't felt that feeling of being burnt. Maybe once I do, I'm also going to join your side of things. But for me, sometimes the anticipation, the only thing that it does is it imbues a sense of importance to the book that took a long time to come out that maybe weighs heavily on it. When I read it and go, oh, well, you know, this is very much like your previous works. I'm not sure Um, I understand necessarily the amount of time and life it took you to, to get to this point, which is unfair. But that's the only thing that happens, at least for me. Um, I'm okay with waiting. I think the getting burnt part is the real one. Um, if you read it and it's fine, you love it, you're excited, you know what, it was all worth it. I don't think I've been burnt, to be fair. Um, the most is I realize I've moved on. And so then it's a little bit of a sort of bittersweet thing like, oh, I remember loving this writer so much and I guess I don't anymore. Um, and that's a. I think that might be more the product of time passing than anything else. I, I don't... I don't begrudge writers their time to write because the time to write results in, if it results in really great work, then we are the only ones who benefit, right? Having said that, uh, I wanted to return to Cormac McCarthy because he said he doesn't really care (laughs) that his (laughs) books are bestsellers, um, which leads me actually to one of the things that people thought he was doing in his spare time, right? That fake Cormac McCarthy Twitter account, which if you have not seen it, is wonderful. It is just the, the best impersonation of a deeply private person that I've ever seen because it's just based on this perception of who Cormac McCarthy is as a presence in the literary world. 
world, right? Just this guy who's like, yeah, I mean, if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I just want the people who read it to like it. But, you know, if they don't also, what can I do? I am sad that that wasn't real. For a time, remember, everyone thought that that was really him. You and I were so excited. And despite not being the biggest fan of his work, oh, I love that Twitter account. I kind of hope that it's a double, double cross and that really is him. So um, I will say also that having talked about the anticipation and the difference in some ways between genre fiction and literary fiction, which Cormac McCarthy firmly, squarely falls into, um, I'm excited about this. Can I call it a duology? I think that's fair. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this duology. It, It explores or seems to explore a number of things that are intriguing. Um, I enjoyed Kate Atkinson's similarly sibling-themed set of novels. So I I like this idea of companion or conversation pieces where the books are in essence talking to one another. I'm more excited about this duology than I actually have been about most of his other books. Um, Maybe because it seems very different. It seems There's a woman. (laughs) Precisely. It seems to be a very un-Cormac McCarthy-like book. And um, we talked about this when we reviewed Ridley Scott and The Last Duel. Um, I feel like when, when creators sort of seem to pivot into trying things that they're not always known for at a at a later stage. It's kind of exciting, isn't it, that in his 80s, McCarthy still wants to try new stuff. Yes, because he did say that he's always wanted to write a novel about women, but did not feel up to it previously, did not feel that he was capable. So here he is anyway, giving it a go. Excited to read it. Um, we've been talking today about the anticipation That comes when authors take a long time in between novels. Um, In this case, 16 years after The Road, Cormac McCarthy will have two new novels coming out this year um, in the span of a month in October and November. Uh, Let us know, are you excited about this? And how do you feel about having to wait for writers to kind of work their way through 20 years or what have you, you know, till the next publication. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.